Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Today on the program, we're going to talk about war. Surprise, surprise. There's no doubt that world war will be a part of the future. Christ plainly taught that there would be war prior to his return in Matthew chapter 24. These passages in Matthew chapter 24 do seem to be giving general descriptions, but they parallel the description given early in Revelation chapter 6, which records details concerning the beginning of the tribulation period. Matthew chapter 24 verses 6 and 7 says that there will be wars and rumors of wars, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Here, Christ makes it very clear that war will play a significant role in the last seven years prior to his return. And before his return, the rapture of the church takes place. So as we are looking at all of this today, Rick, on the program, we're going to talk to our broadcast partners, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Itamar Marcus of Palestinian Media Watch, and Dr. Richard Schmidt will be back on the program today talking about his new book, Globalism, The Great World Consumption. Well, we've got a lot to get to today, Rick, so let's get started with Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I've got Ken Timmerman with us. This is the portion of our program where we look at geopolitical affairs. Ken has a wealth of experience, international experience all over the world. You can find out more about him. Sign up for his newsletter by going to Ken timmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, uh, we've got a few things to get to today, but I'd like to start uh, with a story that might have died down over the week as we talk about it, but we haven't really addressed it on this program, so I wanted to get your thoughts about it. And it is this story of the riots that are taking place in France, basically based around the death of a young man. Could you give us the details of the story and uh, essentially what the status is right now? Sure. Well, the, the, the riots are still going on. The U.S. Embassy this week put out a notice warning Americans to stay away from large urban centers. I mean, pretty extraordinary. When, in fact, some of the riots have been taking place in smaller suburbs around Paris. Look, this all began, and we talked about this last, last week briefly, with the arrest of a 17-year-old immigrant who had multiple arrests beforehand for false papers. He was driving without a license. He had managed to rent a Mercedes AMG sports car. Uh, he got stuck in traffic when these two motorcycle cops caught up to them. They tried to do a traffic stop. He ran off and knocked the guy's gun that was pointed at him and got shot in the throat. Now, since then, even the president of France has called it incomprehensible and inexcusable, essentially uh, condemning his own police officer before the investigation is complete. Macron is walking uh, really on eggshells here. He is terrified of the suburbs exploding. They have uh, periodically exploded in riots over the years. And the reason for this, uh, Rick, is really pretty simple. You have had for decades a massive, massive immigration of Muslims into France. They have not been assimilated. Many of them have not want to be assimilated. They have come in to get essentially uh, social welfare. 
marry multiple wives, uh, put all of those children and households on the dole to get to welfare payments from the government. And they live in these inner city ghettos or these suburban ghettos of like-minded people. They go to the same mosques. Their imams preach jihad and Islamic extremism. And the police uh, are basically afraid to go into these areas. You know, I lived in France for 18 years back in the 80s and the 90s. I write about that in my uh, book and the rest is history. It's just such a funny situation. It's kind of behind the scenes, it's underneath the surface, beneath the surface, this extraordinary tension between a Muslim population that does not want to be French and the French don't want them to be French and yet they're here, right? And uh, nobody knows what to do with them. These kids who are rioting were born French. So they didn't come here from other countries. They don't have another country to go to. They are French citizens and yet they are not treated fully as French citizens and they do not believe that they are fully French citizens. They do not want to take part in the French Republic. This is fundamentally untenable for a society. Uh, it's been going on for decades, Rick. And frankly, the, the president of France, Macron, he does not know what to do. He's just trying to calm things down and hope it will all go away. There is no long-term solution, uh, at least not one that's gonna come from these politicians. Okay, and we take a look at this situation. And of course, the death of any young person is a tragedy. And I'm not going to assign blame to the police or to the person because I I really instead want to talk about this. And you kind of alluded to it, this sleeping giant, this situation uh, of this large migrant population, many of them admittedly radical Islamist, and they're there. They're like you said, they're not assimilating. This seems like a situation, and it's maybe not just France, but all over Europe, it's like a powder keg, and it just might take a match similar to what happened in France to ignite this whole thing. Well, I, I think that's right. And, and look, this is the, here's the downside of multiculturalism. Uh, remember Angela Merkel, the former chancellor of Germany, saying how wonderful it was to be multicultural and to have all these different people from different cultures and societies living together in peace. Well, they're not living to together in peace. When the Muslims come in uh, and they, they are recruited and they come into these ghettos, they're coming in for, to basically take advantage of French society, of European society in general. And they do not want to become European citizens. They want Europe to become like them. So in, in France, there's what they call the Republican ideal where everybody uh, in France, regardless of their background, just as we have the melting pot in the United States, so everybody in France accepts the Republican uh, nature of the country. Everybody is the same, the same law applies to them, the same institutions apply to them, but that is not the same for the Muslim population. They want separate institutions, they do not accept the French institutions, which is why, by the way, in a lot of these riots, they are attacking schools and cultural centers and police stations. Uh, the level of violence, Rick, is really reminiscent of BLM. I, I got some uh, Washington videos over the week and what these kids are doing, they're not just kids, they're buying very powerful fireworks, uh, smashing windows, then throwing in professional uh, fireworks, these kind of big rockets that you send up on the 4th of July. And they're put, throwing those in through the broken window. They're using them as incendiary devices to light these police stations and schools and cultural centers on fire. This is organized. 
It is these are organized riots, and the whole goal is to make France explode and fall apart. That is the goal of the rioters. Well, Ken, we look at that situation, and uh, with the uh, different things taking place across the Middle Eastern world, there were many migrant situations, still are many migrant situations, and a large immigration to America as well. Is this something that we could see on our shores here in America? Well, we saw it in 2020 uh, with BLM. It wasn't from migrants, but it was from Americans who wanted to break apart society. By the way, some of the same groups were involved. In 2020, BLM, you had people dressed in black block. This is a well-known anarchist way of concealing your identity, basically dressed all in black with hoodies and the rest. They are doing exactly the same thing in France today. So it is this Muslim minority, which is disgruntled, disaffected, plus the professional anarchist or communist agitators who want to break up society. And by the way, it is all across Europe. That's why you had, for example, the prime ministers of Italy, the wonderful Georgina Maloney and Poland, that's just uh, Morvecki, getting together this week saying, look, we have to stop operation into Europe. Uh, the so-called Imam of Peace, Mohammed Tawhidi, said uh, last year, that if you import garbage into your country from these Muslim countries, you will get riots and you will get disaffected people and you will have problems. You make your bed and you will sleep in it. And he said, that's what has happened. You have to stop this kind of immigration, bringing Muslim extremists into Europe. And now we have at least two prime ministers, Italy and Poland, saying the same thing publicly. Well, a situation we certainly want to keep an eye on. It's going to affect us internationally as well as locally. Well, let's touch quickly on a couple other stories. There's a report coming out this week that Ukraine has been using artificial intelligence in the fight against Russia. Uh, it, it, it's very interesting to see. And it's a, this is a subject that I have had a lot of curiosity about over the past year and a half. Ukrainians have shown themselves to have a great deal of talent in integrating these drones, for example, uh, using them against the Russians and integrating intelligence from multiple different sources, including from NATO and the United States, to be able to target Russian forces. And now uh, we're finally learning that all of that is not an accident, that in the uh, in roughly in mid-2022, a little over a year ago, the Ukrainian government established a, a special entity to focus on artificial intelligence, what they called computer vision, and they recruited tens of thousands of young people in Ukraine to work on this in their garages, in their homes, to contribute to the national defense. And what they've done is take these thousands and thousands of closed-circuit TV cameras that are all over the country, including in some of the Russian-occupied areas, that allow them to get video footage of places where the Russians have, are hiding their forces. Uh, they're able to then use artificial intelligence to identify who they actually want to target. For example, when they see a drone coming in, they're now able with their own technology, not stuff that they've gotten from NATO, they are able to distinguish between these Iranian suicide Shahid drones and a regular missile. And so they know what kind of defense to use against that incoming uh, attacking platform. And most important, Rick, they have developed this AI platform themselves as a kind of standalone entity instead of incorporating stuff that they could buy from commercial companies or foreign governments, which would then include the possibility of a leak to some commercial company or foreign government. So they're keeping it in-house and they're showing pretty sophisticated technology. 
Well, Ken, so many incidents and situations around the world that we need to keep an eye on. We appreciate you following the news and reporting back to us and giving us an idea of what is taking place in the world. Thank you for what you do. We look forward to talking to you again soon. It's uh, always my pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Well, we got to take a break. And when we come back, our Middle East news update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Kramer with Mission Network News. Fierce battles break out in Sudan as the army tries to cut off militia supply lines. The war is approaching its third month with no end in sight. Over two million people are displaced within Sudan. More than a half million flood as refugees. Unfolding Word equips local church planners to do Bible translation in minority languages. Believers are meeting basic needs like food and shelter. At the same time, they're making Christ's love tangible. Pray believers can be bold and share God's truth as they help people in need. And Mission Aviation Fellowship's inviting you to join their internship program, Waypoints. For eight weeks, a small group of interns travels together to an MAF overseas base. They're mentored in missionary life and help with remote outreach opportunities. MAF's Eric Keller says the internships are more than just short-term mission trips and really prepare potential full-time missionaries. Find your place in this story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the portion of our program. We call it our Middle East News Update. We look at news coming from all around the Middle East, but in Israel in particular. To do that, we have former CBS News journalist, a man who lived in Israel for over 30 years, reporting on news there, Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. A blessing to be with you, Greg. Well, Dave, the big story coming out of Israel this week was this security operation in Janine. Can we just get an overall summary of what took place there and what it means? Yes, Rick, it was an active week, uh, sadly, but that's uh, often the case, especially when summertime comes around. We always have an upsurge of violence and terror in that. Early Tuesday morning, Israel launched a major operation, the largest in over 20 years, actually, in uh, Judea and Samaria. This was in northern Samaria, the northern tip, again in Janine, where we've had all sorts of of trouble, a hotbed of uh, terrorist activity with Islamic Jihad especially active there, backed by Iran and Hamas and others. The IDF went in for two days, a major operation again. The Egos unit, one of their most elite fighting units, was uh, in charge of that, supported by the Shinbet and others. In the two days, they said they killed 12 to 18 Palestinians, varying reports coming, uh, most if not all of them uh, armed militants. 
Some 30 were arrested, most are still detained. The Palestinians said that 120 people were wounded, which the Israelis dispute. They say they were very pinpoint accurate as much as they could be. And then that was followed on Tuesday night by a terror attack in Tel Aviv, yet another one, where a lone Palestinian uh, who had stolen his boss's, his Israeli boss's vehicle with Israeli license plates, because the Palestinians, as you know, have different colored plates, uh, suddenly crossed the median of a major road in North Tel Aviv and hit a bus stop there. He uh, injured eight people. Uh, Two women are still in critical condition. Uh, Another woman lost her baby as a result of it. And uh, it wasn't clear at first if it was an accident or a terror attack, but he jumped out of the vehicle and started uh, slashing people with a large knife. At that point, a civilian, an Israeli civilian, similar to the attack in Eli two weeks ago where a civilian killed uh, one of the attackers, he shot the man dead. That was followed just a few hours later by five rockets being fired from the Gaza Strip to the Israeli town of Sidorot, often the target of attacks there, probably Hamas firing those, although they didn't say so publicly. Uh, The Israeli Iron Dome system thankfully took out all five, but, you know, those uh, anti-rocket missiles also can cause damage, and a chunk of one of them came down in a children's pool in the town, but fortunately it was before dawn and there were no kids there, so nobody injured. The IDF then went into Gaza through the air and bombed several uh, targets on Wednesday, and uh, then that evening, IDF forces pulled out of Jenin, so just a two-day operation, and I'll discuss the details, as you said, in a little bit. But uh, sadly, as they were doing so, an Israeli soldier was killed. And uh, he was a member of Egos, a 23-year-old young man, and <laughs> well-known in uh, Bethel, uh, Bethel, where he lived. So their morning of that, of course, and they had just almost left when it happened. And then on Thursday, we had another terror attack, this time in the town of Kedumim, a settlement people would call it, I guess. That's just west of Nablus, Rick, and that's where the finance minister, Shmorich, who, of course, is one of the leaders of the right-wing Zionist bloc uh, in the government, that's where he lived. Uh, A man in a white van was seen circling uh, the security fence. The security guard went out to talk to him. As he did so, the man was hostile, said he was doing nothing wrong. Well, the security guard had had called some soldiers in, four of them showed up, and the head of that unit was uh, shot dead by the terrorists, sadly. So two Israeli soldiers killed in these two different places, and uh, but uh, they shot the terrorists dead as well. So he's He's no longer there. And sadly, we're expecting more such attacks and more responses with Iranian condemnation, Hezbollah condemnation. Oh, and I should add, also on Thursday, we had two rockets fired from Lebanon aimed at northern Israel. One landed inside the Lebanese border. The other did make it into Israel. The Israelis said it was probably anti-tank missiles and not full rockets. But that was in the northern Galilee, uh, the town of Gajar, which is disputed between Lebanon and Syria, but Israel controls the southern half. There's often problems there. And so um, there's a concern that we'll see Hezbollah get more and more involved in uh, a reaction to all of this. Just another uh, chapter in the ongoing Palestinian-Israeli conflict.
Well, it certainly is, David, and this is very concerning. We look at this situation. This is a security operation, uh, something looking to prevent these attacks in the future. But, of course, they provoked responses like the terrorist attacks in Tel Aviv and Kidamim and also probably the the attack from Lebanon. But it's interesting. We hear about these situations a lot coming from Gaza, but this is from Janine. Can you tell us a little bit about why Janine would be strategically important? Well, um, it is important because it has become the center of Islamic Jihad in particular, i.e. it becomes Iran's central point in Judea and Samaria for launching attacks. And uh, by the way, Rick, it's actually not pronounced by the Arabs Janin, but Jenin. Janin was a town in central Lebanon in the Bekaa Valley controlled by Hezbollah. And many battles took place in the 80s and 90s when IDF forces were in Lebanon up there. So when that ended and then the second Palestinian uprising began in 2000, one of the centers was Jenin, not Janin, but the Israelis called it Janin, and that stuck, and that's what the media now calls it. But it's isolated, the northernmost town in Samaria, very close to Mount Gilboa on the other side, uh, not so far from Haifa, the Megiddo Valley, just on the other side of the mountain. Uh, there's no Israeli towns right around it, unlike Nablus, where Kedumim is, as I said, and, uh, and Hebron and other places where Jews actually live in parts of the town. No Jews in that area at all. It's a beautiful area. In fact, in the Bible, it was called uh, Ganim, another reason they call it Janim, Ganim, which means gardens in Hebrew, because there's a series of springs and the hills around it. It's really a beautiful area. It's so sad. But in 1948, many of the Palestinians have fled their homes on the coastal plain and in Haifa and in other areas, moved to that uh, town. And so now they call it the Janine Refugee Camp. But uh, a camp implies that, you know, people are out there camping in tents or something. It's part of the city. It's got buildings and sidewalks and roads and, and everything that the rest of the city has, but it is a stronghold of radical uh, groups. It was that way uh, in the first uprising. It was that way in the second. And actually, the turning point, Rick, of the second Palestinian uprising was there when Israeli forces en masse as part of a major operation, defensive shield that they launched all over uh, Judea and Samaria and the Gaza Strip that they went in there and for, oh, many days the battles took place and it was broadcast all over the world. But after that, the Palestinian resistance started to die down and the terrorism died down. The Israelis are hoping that this operation will do the same. By the way, they called it house and garden, garden again being the ancient Hebrew name, Ganim, for the area. They say that 14 homes or businesses or mosques were uh, targeted. They were hideouts, known hideouts for these terrorist groups. Israel has good intelligence, of course, so they knew all about this. They say they took out over a dozen bomb uh, workshops, that they seized uh, 500 or so bombs and other 
devices that were there and uh, suicide belts and other things. The hope is it will reduce Palestinian terrorism now because a good portion of the last year and a half's terror attacks have emanated from there and the planning from there, as opposed to previously where it was mostly coming from the Gaza Strip itself. They're hoping things will calm down. You know, it will continue. And uh, but it at least puts a dent in that. And the Israelis are hoping for at least uh, some time it will do so. David, before we move on to other subjects, I'd like to ask you, we talk about the shadow war with Iran, the proxy war that they are waging. Do you see Iran's fingerprints in what is taking place in Janine? Definitely, Rick, and really it goes back to the formation of Islamic Jihad by Iran in 1981. And uh, the next year in Lebanon, Hezbollah founded. And they have continued to stir up the pot they condemned the Oslo peace process that Arafat signed on to. They had earlier condemned the peace treaty with Egypt and later treaty with Jordan. Iran continues to want to see this jihad holy war continue until Israel's total destruction. They say that all the time. They mean it. And they have enough authority and enough influence to always keep these terror groups going. And the average Palestinian would like to see the conflict calm down, but they don't want to see that. And they can always find recruits that agree with them. Well, David, another report out of Israel that is full of concern and full of cause for us to pray. As we always say, pray for the peace of Israel, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for uh, benefiting us with your knowledge and information. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Glad to do it, Rick. God bless. We got to take a break. And when we come back, Itamar Marcus and Dr. Richard Smith, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. And along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, we're going to continue in Israel with Itamar Marcus. And then Dr. Richard Schmidt will be here at the last part of this half hour. But Rick, Itamar Marcus is standing by with Palestinian Media Watch. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Itamar Marcus with us from Palestinian Media Watch. He's been on the program before. Itamar, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Itamar, if you could, before we talk a little bit about this operation that took place in Janine and how the Palestinian media sees it, could you tell us a little bit about your organization, Palestinian Media Watch? Palestinian Media Watch has a team of uh, nine translators, uh, researchers, experts in the uh, Arab in the Palestinian world, and we study all the Palestinian sources, their Facebook pages, their social media, uh, and their official newspaper and TV to get a sense of what the Palestinian leadership 
uh, is, is teaching its people which direction they're bringing its people. So by studying all the, essentially the output of the Palestinian leaders, um, we know exactly where the Palestinian Authority is heading and we know exactly what their beliefs and opinions are. We'll begin this interview by looking at the situation that took place in Janine this week. Of course, it was world news. There was an IDF security operation in Janine. And if you could, could you let us know how that was viewed by the uh, official Palestinian Authority media? Well, the Palestinian leadership uh, completely misconstrued and misrepresented what was happening there. The, the, the leadership said that it was a barbaric attack on Palestinian civilians, and they called for international protection. Um, they made it seem like Israel was going in there for the whole sole purpose of, of causing the havoc. They didn't mention at all that Janine had become a city of refuge for terrorists. There had been, over the last year, there have been over 50 Israelis who have been murdered in Palestinian terrorist acts, and most of the terrorists came from Janine. Uh, many terrorists, after they committed terrorist acts, went hiding in Janine. So Israel had no choice. We, we had no choice but to go in and finally get to the root of the problem. And what we found there was, was shocking in many respects, even things that weren't publicized. For example, there was a mosque. And the mosque was a literally a military base for, for terrorists. Uh, they found in the mosque, uh, among other things, they found two underground uh, storage rooms with tunnels going out to other storage areas and other buildings uh, filled with hundreds and hundreds of uh, weapons and, and bombs and other munitions. This is a mosque, and, and they figure a mosque is a safe place. And a holy place, and they're using it to, to as they literally, um, as a place to store weapons. Uh, so that was this, and so much more that Israel uh, had to find. Uh, we also killed and terrorists who had attacked us. Uh, we arrested a few hundred uh, who did not attack us, and many of them have already been released because they were investigated and released. But the point is, Israel cannot live. By giving uh, cannot cannot live well if we allow terrorists to have a city of refuge, and that was the purpose of this attack. One of the lines that struck me from the article that I saw that you put up on Palestinian Media Watch, the official Palestinian Authority news station, their narrator read a poem, and the poem ended talking about Janine presenting its sons as a sacrifice for Jerusalem and the cause. Janine is our beautiful bride who perfumes herself daily with the scent of martyrdom. This is really inflammatory for the Palestinian people, isn't it? Absolutely, and there's also another point here. Not only are they encouraging Palestinians to go and kill Israelis, but they're also trying to convince them that there's nothing wrong with dying as a martyr. In fact, the opposite. They're trying to make it seem like martyrdom is good. Now, this is very significant because the death in the terror attack is usually seen as the greatest deterrence, and the Palestinian Authority has flipped it on its head by presenting death as the best thing that can happen, because you're dying for Allah. So therefore, try to kill an Israeli. If you kill an Israeli, great. If you don't and you're killed, that's even better, because you've died for Allah. This is the message, and that was the meaning of that song there that you just read, uh, that poem that was publicized by the official Palestinian Authority uh, newsreader. Itamar, we look at this situation, and we've been talking about the Palestinian media, but let's look at the world's reaction to this, and specifically the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company. They did an interview with former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, 
And they're talking about how Israel is killing children and even saying they're happy to kill children in Janine. Absolutely. It was a, it was a viciously evil uh, question by this uh, interviewer from the BBC. She said, well, she stated it as a fact almost, uh, Israeli, Israeli forces are happy to kill children. Um, it is so the opposite of the truth. There have been so many cases throughout history of, of Israeli soldiers actually uh, endangering their lives and sometimes losing their lives because they were worried about the civilian deaths on the uh, on the Palestinian side or because terrorists hid behind civilians and Israel did not want to go after the civilians. So, so that's a complete, a complete libel coming from the BBC. And the second libel was that Israel had killed children. Well, Israel killed a number of people under the age of 18, actually four of them, but we, Palestinian Media Watch, publicized pictures of three of them actually armed with with automatic rifles, Uh, two of them wearing headbands, one of Hamas and one of them Islamic Jihad. So these were 17 and 16-year-old terrorists, and the BBC has the nerve to go and say, why is Israel killing children, when in fact the Palestinians are very happy to publicize these pictures afterwards showing them as full-fledged terrorists. They, they publicized these pictures, of course, to honor them, that they weren't just civilians who died haphazardly, but to honor them that they were actually fighters, which, of course, the international community and any decent person calls terrorists because they're actually targeting um, Israelis and, and we're not in a war situation. Well, we encourage our people to get a variety of news sources and, of course, listen to our program because we have people like Itamar Marcus on to tell you what is truly being said in the story. Well, my final question, and we look at this, you mentioned over 50 Israelis killed by terrorist acts this year alone, which is one of the worst years. But if we look at the situation, this operation in Janine, an IDF operation, and we've seen previous ones like this in Gaza in, in different situations, these are things that Israel must do because this situation, 50 people dying, that could be much worse, couldn't it? Absolutely. Um, we, we have made a point of almost almost every single terrorist who killed an Israeli has been eventually, uh, usually within a couple of months, sometimes within days, has been tracked down and killed during this period. Uh, but there have been many attempted murders. Terrorists still have their rifles, their weapons, and their hand grenades, and they're still roaming around freely uh, in these Palestinian Authority cities, and usually with the protection of the Palestinian Authority. So we, we have to go after them. We can't wait for them to come to us. I, I don't know if you heard, but today uh, an Israeli civilian was killed by a Palestinian terrorist. And so we, we did what we did in Janine and the Palestinian and yesterday another Palestinian terrorist um, ran over uh, and seriously injured a number of people in Tel Aviv. So terror is with us because of so many years that the Palestinian Authority has promoting it, supporting it, rewarding it, and Israel has tried to, uh, what should I say, and we've, we've restricted ourselves and tried not to actually go into the Arab cities, like we did this week, um, uh, uh, and, and go after them. But I think this is going to end up being the rule right now. We, we cannot allow a situation to continue like this, where the where the Palestinians, uh, you know, anytime they want to, they can just take their white rifle, go on the road and shoot at Israelis, or take their car and go into Tel Aviv, uh, or steal a car in Tel Aviv, and then go and run down uh, Israelis who are just waiting in a bus stop. So Israel's going to have to do something again. 
Well, Edomar, we appreciate you providing an accurate portrayal of what is being said in the Palestinian media so we can get a sense of what is actually taking place and not necessarily accepting wholesale the narrative that some people around the world want to push. Well, we appreciate what you do. We encourage our listeners to go to palwatch.org. You can find out what they do. Edomar, thank you. Stay safe in Israel, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Intermar Marcus keeps us informed as to what is happening. I mean, he lives out near Hebron. He's very close to the situation, watching what goes on, Rick. And I think that it's so good to be able to have him on and being able to to clearly give us what's taking place. And I, I don't think it's really an issue. We've seen this. We know this. If you're a, a longtime listener of our program, your understanding of these things. Well, you know, just as we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic words so that we know the time that we are living in and the, the urgency of the hours of the days, I do think that it's also important that we prepare the body of Christ for these times that we live in. And uh, I've uh, for far too long, I haven't had my good friend, Dr. Richard Schmidt, uh, I call him America's pastor. If he's not America's pastor, he's our pastor, former sheriff of Milwaukee County. Dr. Schmidt, welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I, I always remind folks of this, Dr. Schmidt. You have the the responsibility and the pleasure of shepherding sheep in your church. Uh, you're a pastor of a church in Union Grove, Wisconsin. And uh, you're also, you have a ministry of prophecy teaching, and uh, you're out on the road, you're doing conferences quite a bit, and I mean, that's a great, I love the fact that when churches use uh, Bible prophecy as a part of every service that they do, don't you think that that's important? Well, I think it's dramatically important, especially with a tremendous swing in the pendulum from basically what me and you would call dispensational theology or believing in a, a timeline that God's put in scriptures, that too, in many places, unfortunately, is going passe. So the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual uh, interpretation of scripture, it's lost a lot of ground, and our ministry, same as yours, is trying to revive that and get it back where it's part of our normal, everyday church life. Yes. And do you think our churches are are possibly straying away from the foundations of the faith because they're not teaching all of the Word of God? Oh, absolutely. And, and Bible prophecy is one-third of the Bible, which means if uh, many pastors, many churches, they'll make it very clear they don't want to talk about prophecy or God's prophetic calendar because they state it's too controversial or too hard to understand both things of which I dramatically am not agreeing with. So it's so important that uh, we teach the whole counsel of God. I just heard a great message from an individual at a conference on biblical literacy. And uh, real quick, one statistic he threw out is the average home has three Bibles in it. And the average family, according to uh, Pew and Barna Research, spends a maximum of three times in the Word of God a year in their home. So that's very disturbing. <laughs> and that's why we do this program. Look, we are trying to encourage folks. We're not throwing rocks. Um, we know how busy life can be. But 
you know, I, I like the fact that sometimes we should think about our Bibles the same way we think about our iPhones today. You know, we wake up in the morning, we see if we've got any text from someone during the night or what the weather is or things like that. That should be our first go-to every day is to wake up and look at God's word, see what God has for us for that day. And maybe we would up up that uh, time uh, people spend in God's word. Wow, that's great. Well, speaking of that, uh, you were a keynote speaker at uh, a conference and you spoke on globalism, the great world consumption. And uh, you spoke there at this conference uh, uh, of the IFCA, Independent Fundamental Churches of America, correct? Well, that's right. I had a breakout session and I uh, was really happy to be able to speak on this subject, which, of course, is prophetic and is near and dear to my heart. Well, I asked this because, and in, in, was it very controversial at the conference at the, for all these churches and all these pastors that were there? No, not at all. Uh, with the IFCA conference, uh, we're basically all on the same page. Uh, but I think maybe uh, when we think about some of the other conferences that exist, even uh, bringing up the Southern Baptist Convention, which just had a recent conference, they did have some uh, serious issues that they were facing and uh, some serious controversy. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Dr. Schmidt, because, you know, not often do we get a chance. You and I, and we've rubbed shoulders with other pastors and other friends and ministry people that we work with, but not everybody gets a chance. Help me to understand what was going on uh, with the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, the Southern Baptists have uh, they've kind of been up and down, if you will, on the conservative versus liberal scale in past uh, years and decades, actually. And uh, I'm very pleased to say, for the most part now, there's been a resurgence back, back in the Southern Baptist Convention to try and get back to biblical literacy, biblical mm. principles, and following the Word of God. But unfortunately, uh, on, in this particular conference, there's been some major players in the Southern Baptist Convention that uh, started hiring women pastors or endorsing women pastors. And this caused a, a major issue at the convention where uh, basically their statement of faith calls for that uh, there, there will not be women pastors in Southern Baptist churches. So unfortunately, this led to a couple of major churches. Some people are familiar with uh, Saddleback Church, mm -hmm. which was formerly pastored by Pastor Rick Warren, and a couple other churches that basically were voted out of the convention, the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, because of their endorsement of female pastors. So that's that's very disturbing and heartbreaking for uh, their folks, and it, it just causes unnecessary division when when certain churches decide to do something that is anti-biblical, anti-scriptural, and uh, this is one of those instances. Yes, well, help me with this, because I've been to a few churches, and I visit quite a few, and uh, whether traveling or, you know, feeling like I should go to a church if I'm traveling on the road and I'm not speaking someplace, I'm sure as you do. Uh, I've been to churches uh, where pastors have their wives speak, and and as if as if it's a they're a you know a unit of one, the husband and wife together, um, and and that's not even okay, is it? According to scripture. Well, no, and I, and we have to go to scripture because if we went on public opinion and culture, mm -hmm. we could come up with uh, a whole lot of different opinions on this. 
but we've got to be biblical literate. And unfortunately for those who hold, if you if you will, to the woman pastorate side, we've got to go right back to, to Scripture. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 makes it very clear. Uh, this is a faithful saying, if a man... And that's uh, in the Greek there, it's it's male. Mm. Uh, if a man desires the position of a bishop or overseer or pastor, synonymous terms, he desires good work. A bishop then or a pastor must be blameless. And now here's a kicker, the husband of one wife. Mm. Uh, regardless of how do you try and play cultural games today, uh, the Bible's very specific that uh, the pastor is an individual that is a male. Now, this isn't to denigrate our uh, the females. I mean, in our church, uh, of course, we don't have female pastors, but the, the ladies have many very wonderful ministries. They serve in teaching other ladies. They do hospitality. They teach children's ministries. So by no means are we trying to say, well, women uh, shouldn't be given a, a wonderful place within the church. But when it comes to pastoring, God makes it very clear. Uh, one more passage very quickly, Titus chapter 1, verse 6. Bible says there, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, talking about the qualifications of a pastor. Mm -hmm. So I applaud, I really do, I applaud the Southern Baptist Convention. I applaud L. Moeller for standing on the Scripture, not bending to compromise in current cultural norms and societal norms. And uh, I, I really appreciate that they stood on the Word of God, at least on this particular issue. Yes, you know, and and uh, this is something that uh, we deal with internally within inside the church, uh, you know, sections and and groups of people, the Baptist uh, and uh, other denominations, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, and all of those, as they are going through the process, they're they're dealing with issues that are really tearing apart the 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 unity of the church uh, in which uh, those decisions are made and i'm wondering cuz i'm looking at uh, this uh this breakout session that you did at the IFCA Independent Fundamental Churches of America conference and it and your first session was church age chaos setting the stage for antichrist one world system would you categorize that what we're experiencing in this church age uh, the chaos within the body of Christ, is is this setting the stage for the Antichrist? Well, I absolutely believe it is. And uh, when we go to Second Timothy chapter 3, which is really one of the key verses that make this very well known, Apostle Paul was talking to Timothy, and he made it very clear, even back 2,000 years ago during the, the first century A.D., he said, listen, uh, Timothy, know this, in the last days, perilous, dangerous times will come. And uh, he was talking about the church age end times. He wasn't talking about the prophetic or what we'll call eschatological future, the mm -hmm. tribulation, millennium, and so forth. He was referring to what was taking place at the current time. He went through 19 specific things that, quite frankly, have been very visible for the last 2,000 years, things that are just exponentially getting worse and worse, which are certainly, as uh, I love what your dad used to say, setting the stage for Bible prophecy mm -hmm. to be fulfilled. So let's, uh, let's talk about this a little bit, because I do think when you start going away from foundational issues of the body of Christ, the, the, the basis, really, if you will, our statement of faith that we've always followed, we start allowing 
other decisions to be made that dictate how we run church. Oh, absolutely. And that's basically bowing down to the culture society. But what we talked about at the conference is when you look at Revelation chapter 13, it makes it very clear that the Antichrist will come up with a one-world government, one-world economy, and a one-world religion. And we're seeing multiple things, which I discuss in my book on globalism, that literally are pointing out these issues that are truly setting the stage for Bible prophecy. Now, first one we'll just throw out there is the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. I mean, we've all in the Christian community have talked about this. We've seen it, how it's affected not only us here in America domestically, but on a massive international scale. Things took place that have never taken place before. It's affected the economy. It's affected travel. It's affected opening of churches. It's affected businesses. The entire world has been affected by this. Well, what has COVID-19 done? It has set the stage for that one-world government, the one-world economy, and even the one-world religion, which is going to come. We can see just from one pandemic how quickly the world jumped on board, and literally, even though we still have our various countries, they all became very unified on some very, very specific issues. This indeed is setting the stage for prophecy. Do you think that we're going to see more issues and deal with more crises such as COVID coming up in the future? Well, absolutely. And and again, that's just one little piece of the, of yeah. the puzzle. We look at other things like lawlessness, mm-hmm. just the exponential increase in violence. In 2022, 40,000 people were killed through uh, violent gun encounters, 300 of those being children. This last weekend, July 4th, Uh, There were 13 miners shot in the Milwaukee area alone. I mean, this is off the charts horrible. 610 mass shootings in 2022. So we have lawlessness. Another major issue that is, boy, it's just exponentially gone off the charts recently is the changes with gender identity, lesbianism, homosexuality, uh, and now uh, uh, the massive uptick in uh, transgender issues. Just catch this one statistic. In a Washington, D.C. suburb, a 991% increase in transgender interest in students. Uh, these things are all setting the stage for uh, absolute hatred of God, absolute hatred of God's worldview, and these things are just massively increasing as we speak. Yes, and we didn't even get to climate change when we talk about that, how the world is talking about climate change, and we see all of this as putting us in for a one-world economy. The last chapter in your book, the last chapter is about the one-world economy and the Great Reset. What do we see in that? Well, we see Klaus Schwab in the economic forum, the world economic forum, again, pushing the globalist concept We see the devaluation of the American dollar. We see the push for digital currency, a one-world currency, which is, of course, what uh, the World Economic Forum is pushing for. We see the uh, China social credit scores, which are basically, if you don't comply with the government system, they lock up your money, they lock up your credit. All these things which are terrifying to most people, it's, it's reality in some countries already. So it's setting the stage once again for 
a horrible situation which absolutely will take place according to Revelation 13 when that one world economy, if you don't have the the mark of the beast or the Antichrist, you don't buy or sell. If you don't worship the beast, the, the image of the beast, you will be killed, Revelation 13, 15. These things are absolutely horrifying, but the good news is, is that any person today who's placed their faith and trust in Christ absolutely will not go through these horrible times. Yes. And as a pastor, when you're dealing with your folks, and I know you've done a study on, uh, and you've written a book on it, how do you comfort the people in your church? Uh, you, you know, when we go to First Thessalonians chapter 4, when we're talking about the, when it gives uh, in detailed explanation the rapture of the church, and then he says at the end, you know, wherefore comfort one another with these words. When you look at Bible prophecy, a lot of people say, well, you're preaching doom and gloom and you're, you know, you're scaring us. How do, how do we use this and say, well, really, these words are comforting to us? Well, they're absolutely comforting because here's the great comfort. Not a single person under hearing our voice today has to go through any of these things. All the things we just mentioned are literally going to happen in a horrible way in the future during the seven-year tribulation period. But uh, one of the great things, which I love prophecy today, your, your program, it emphasizes that Jesus Christ is coming back potentially today as we speak mm. to come and take his church-age saints home to be with him. There's no greater comfort than that, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That is a tremendous comfort for God's people. Yes, it is. Dr. Richard Schmidt, uh, tell us how to get your book. Well, a couple of ways. You can go to prophecyfocus.org. Again, your your ministry's prophecy today, ours prophecyfocus.org. Uh, very similar. That's because I love you guys. And uh, <laughs> the issue being uh, prophecyfocus.org, uh, you can go there and order it. You can go on Amazon and order it. So a couple of ways to get it. Yes, uh, the feeling is mutual, brother. We appreciate your ministry. Dr. Richard Schmidt, thank you so much for being with us today. Great to have this conversation with you again, and uh, looking forward to getting together next time. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. He's concluding his series on God's plan through the ages, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, uh, on our website, uh, we have many DVDs and audio series that people can order. And one of my favorite was a uh, series that we did on the book of Matthew in the land of Israel. You worked with me on it. We've recorded that one. And not a lot of people know about that series, but that series is entitled Matthew, Thy Kingdom Come. It is, Jimmy. And that's just one of the many DVD series that we have on there. And we also have an audio series by the same name for our teaching on Matthew. But Jimmy, there's all kinds of resources on our website. If you go to prophecytoday.com, it's a way to get engaged with our ministry. You could look at the reports that we put out on a daily basis. You could see our audios series, but you can also look at, like you said, DVDs, audios, books. And we humbly ask you, if you enjoy this program and you appreciate our ministry, of course, we would love for you to pray for our ministry. And if you could be involved in supporting our ministry, you can do that at our website as well. 
Yes, uh, that's prophecytoday.com. We really appreciate it. Well, we're finishing up our legacy series this week, the series that we're going to conclude our journey through the Bible that we've been taking as we are learning of God's plan through the ages, Rick. Starting in Genesis, we trace the Gentile people from Adam to Abraham, and then we started with Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. The Jewish people were chosen by the Lord for a special purpose. You know God has a plan for the Jewish people, and his plan will be played out. Along the way, the Lord would have to chastise his chosen people. God took them out of the land. And that's where we're going to start today on our study in the book of Ezra, chapter 1. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. God raises up a Persian king named Cyrus. 150 years before the fact, in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, God gave Isaiah the prophet a message. I'm going to raise up a man. He's going to let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. In fact, I'm going to name the man. His name is Cyrus. That's pretty good, isn't it? 150 years before the fact, the event, and the man who's going to allow it to happen. Look here, verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Chapter 2, he allows the rubble to take 50,000 Jews back into Jerusalem from all the 12 tribes of Israel. Hello? All 12 tribes, no lost 10 tribes in the world. Read the scripture. It's key to understand history so you can understand the future. All 12 tribes are in the land. All of Israel goes back. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 in the book of Ezra. They get back into the land. Uh, They fall to the Babylonian Empire, 539 B.C. It takes them 25 years. It's about 515 B.C. now. And finally, after the ministry, look here in chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the prophet, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem. They told them to build the temple. God raises up two prophets. One of them is a priest, that's Zechariah. The other is a crusty old man, that's Haggai. The crusty old man said, get in there and build that temple. Zechariah, the suave priest, says, please, come along. Let's build the temple. That's our priority. By the way, this brings the prophets into our minds. There's 17 prophets in the Old Testament that have written books. Prophets throughout the Old Testament. These 17 prophesy at a certain time in history. You see here, Zechariah and Haggai and one other, Malachi. The last three, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi... They prophesy after the Babylonian captivity. Now, if you want to know how to read and understand what you're reading. So they are the prophets after the Babylonian captivity, after the Jews have returned to the land. There are two prophets that prophesy during the Babylonian captivity. That would be Daniel and Ezekiel. All the rest of the prophets prophesy before the Babylonian captivity. Now, that's key. If you're a student of prophecy, a student of the Word of God, you've got to have that in mind. Who are the three afterwards? Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. The two during Daniel and Ezekiel. All the other prophets before the Babylonian captivity. And so we see the prophets now coming into existence. There's so much more. Let me just take you over to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. And he makes a statement. He said, before the grateful, dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah is going to show up. And then, that's the last word of God 
for 400 years. But that bridge is spanned by Elijah. John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, comes on the scene. He is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah, the Jewish people. Jesus Christ comes, as promised throughout the entire Old Testament, to set up a kingdom. For who? The Jewish people. The kingdom only promised to the Jewish people. Never promised to Christians. Only promised to the Jewish people. It could not come into existence, that great and dreadful day of the Lord, until Elijah shows up. John the Baptist goes out, as described in the text looking like Elijah. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, he's the greatest man born of women. And he could have fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi 4, 5 and be Elijah. But the Jews rejected him. They rejected me. And so thus, that prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the life of Jesus Christ with 35 miracles. He confirms that he is the Messiah. But at the end, once they have rejected him. And do you remember Matthew 16? Matthew 16 is following 14 and 15. What happens in Matthew 14? The Lord feeds 5,000 men and women, additional, and children, additional. Probably 20,000 people. With two little fishes, five little loaves of bread, they pick up 12 baskets full. A miracle! By the way, that guaranteed creation took place in six 24-hour days. Didn't take thousands of years for the Lord to take a little fish and make it enough so 20,000 people could eat. He said it and it was done. That's chapter 14. You know what happens in chapter 15 of the book of Matthew? He feeds 4,000. That's another time. 4,000 men plus the women and children. And so and when within one month, he's fed all of these people with unbelievable miracles. John chapter 6 says he went from the people because he was afraid they were going to come and take him and make him king. They rejected him. In chapter 16, they go up to Caesarea Philippi. Has a little conversation with his disciples up there. He says, who do you say that I am? Ultimately, Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then what does Jesus do? Very interestingly, he says, I'm not going to be the king, though, because I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'll be buried. I'll be resurrected. What did old Peter say? Not so, Lord. You're not doing it. He rebuked him. He comes into the city. He is crucified. He is buried. And three days later, he resurrects from the dead. Then he takes those disciples who had traveled with him. Oh, by the way, the Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in all four Gospels. Only in the feeding of the 5,000 do you find this in all four Gospels and the death, burial, and resurrection. He takes his disciples. They go to the Galilee. He has 40 days up there with them. What does he teach them? Things pertaining to the kingdom. He taught them about what he was going to give the Jewish people one day. Acts chapter 1, they get back to Jerusalem. Jesus, ready to set up your kingdom? No, I'm not. When are you going to do it? I don't know. Only my father knows that. And he ascended into the heavenlies. Two men in white apparel standing there say, Hey, why stand you here gazing into heaven as he's gone? So he's going to come again one day. Next day, Peter being obedient, 
starts to preach in Jerusalem. It's the day of Pentecost. It's the establishment of the church. Put down the apostles. You see, you have Adam from Abraham. That's Gentiles. Abraham to the apostles. That's Gentiles and Jews. Now the third member of the human family from Gentiles and Jews comes the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 and following says there were two people at enmity with each other, Gentiles and Jews, wall of petition between them. With the death, burial, and resurrection, he pulls the wall out, makes two people one, Christians, first called Christians in Antioch, Acts 16. And so we have this third strand of the human family, and that continues from the apostles to the Antichrist. Go to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. This is the first of the next events. This is the rapture of the church, a seven-year period of time, the return of Jesus Christ, a thousand-year period of time, and then a great white throne judgment. We're moving now into the end times. Chapter 4, verse 1. Notice what it says. I heard, as it were, a trumpet talking with me. A trumpet. That is the trumpet sound that is going to take John the Revelator, from the earth into the heavenlies. This is chapter 4, book of Revelation. Next 16 chapters, detailed information about the tribulation period. Chapter 19, verse 11, the return of Christ. Chapter 20, verses 4, 5, and 6, uh, the kingdom to come. Chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, the great white throne judgment. Chapters 21 and 22, the book of Revelation, eternity future. And we have from Adam to eternity future. Adam to Abraham. 2,000 years, Genesis 1 to Genesis 12, Gentiles. Abraham to the apostles. 2,000 years, Genesis 12 to Acts 1, Gentiles and Jews. Acts 2, you have the appearance of the apostles for the church. 2,000 years, Acts chapter 2 to Revelation 22. Antichrist appears and breaks that up and brings on another time in history. Want to know something? We're going to look at the Gentiles more in detail in their timeline. We'll go to the revival in the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, verse 7. In a dream Daniel has, ten horns appear. That's the revived Roman Empire. Not because I said, because Gabriel, the archangel, told Daniel, that's it. The revival of the Roman Empire. That's chapter 7, verses 23 and 24. The infrastructure is in place for the revived Roman Empire. You recognize the name, I would think, European Union. And then there's going to be a restoration. Chapter 34 of the book of Ezekiel, 18 times God says, I will find my people where have they been scattered. I will gather them in. I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them like a good shepherd feeds his flock in the fields. 18 times. The most significant indicator we're living in the last days is the restoration of the Jewish people. And then we'll get to retribution. The 16th chapter of the book of Revelation talks about the judgment being so bad, people will take their tongue, put it between their teeth, and bite down on it. It'll be so bad, the judgment. They'll gnaw their tongue with pain, but not repent. And in chapter 16, the last of the 21 judgments, verses 17 and following, he says, remember what you did, Babel? You destroyed my temple. My wrath is upon you. And Babylon, modern-day Iraq, Babylon will be destroyed. Retribution. Revival 
the Roman Empire. Restoration, the Jewish people in the land. Retribution, Babylon will be destroyed all on the sea as we see the culmination of God's plan through the ages. We're here. More details to follow. Father, thank you for this awesome book you've given us. Thank you for you having a systematic plan in place. Thank you for the privilege being able to study it, come to a better understanding of it. And in light of the knowledge you now give us, help us to live the way you would have us. In thy precious name we pray with thanksgiving. Part of God's plan for the future is the revival of the Roman Empire. And at the same time, the Roman Empire is coming back on the world scene. The Lord will restore the Jewish people to the land of their forefathers, the land of Israel as we know it today. There is yet a time of retribution ahead, and the focus will be the literal city of Babylon. We'll look at these three prophecies, revival, restoration, and retribution, on our future studies on this broadcast. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Go to our website, prophecytoday.com. You'll be able to find more audio series and DVDs. Two years ago this August, Dad went home to be with the Lord, and we still love playing the Legacy Series. A lot of great teaching. We've got to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. A Christian in Pakistan has gone into hiding after a Muslim mob accused him of blasphemy for posting a Bible verse on Facebook. On June 29th, Haroon Shahzad posted 1 Corinthians 10, 18-21, angering Muslims who were beginning the festival Eid al-Adha. A new agreement allows blasphemy cases to be tried under Pakistan's anti-terrorism laws. Nehemiah with FMI says it opens the door to more mob rule. Pray courage and wisdom for Pakistani believers. And Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, is using the Bible to train its artificial intelligence speech tool. So does AI ever help Bible translators? Andrew Fleming of Wycliffe USA says AI is especially helpful in sign language Bible translation. 98% of the world's deaf population has no access to the gospel in sign language. But that's about to change thanks to technology like artificial intelligence. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. 
Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, as I started the program today, I said, surprise, surprise, we're going to be talking about war. And we did talk about war. I thought it was very interesting. Ken's analysis on what's taking place in Europe. What What are your thoughts? I mean, do you really think uh, you asked Ken about the question of it coming to the United States? We do know that uh, the Ezekiel 38, 39, Ezekiel 38 war with Gog and Magog, it encompasses a lot of the Islamic world. As a matter of fact, I mean, a large portion, the common denominator in a lot of those countries that is that they're Islamic. But we see that taking place in France. Do you think it could really come to the United States? Well, Jimmy, it certainly seems like it could. And we have seen echoes of this throughout the news. And we report on these instances. But we look at this situation. And one thing that struck me that Ken said is they are not a part of France. And they don't want to be a part of France. They want to have basically their own thing, which is their belief in Islam. I I see that here in America as well. And I think it's something that we have to be on our guard. But Jimmy, it just points to the fact that these end time scenario, this stage shedding is taking place here. We see all these pieces coming into place for what we know is going to be a future war. Yes. You know, and I I said to Dr. Schmidt, I, I mentioned to him, as we study Bible prophecy, it not only helps us to understand the times in which we're living in the future, but it promotes that we be prepared. And uh, so many times we put a lot of trust in our government. Well, I think we used to put trust in our government. I don't think we put as as much trust in our government anymore. Uh, but really, we should be about figuring it out what God has for each and every single one of us to do. God's perfect will for our lives and to be involved in it. And not everybody can be a pastor. Not everybody can be in a Bible ministry. It, it, a lot of times it's just taking what you know, being prepared, taking God's word. And Rick, when uh, Dr. Schmidt said, you know, the average family has three Bibles. The average Christian family has three Bibles per family, and they only open it up three times a year to look and read God's word. I mean, that's really something when you think about that, as we are understanding um, that all the information that we get is from God's word. That certainly is correct, Jimmy. And we try to stay focused on Scripture here. And as we look at these things, and we've talked about it in the past, we have looked at specific instances today. But, you know, it's a it's kind of more of a constellation of events, different things taking place. And when you know what the Word says, and when you know as you're studying Scripture, opening it more than three times a year as you study Scripture and you look at all of these things taking place, not just one thing here or one thing there, but all over the world, all coming together at the same time, you realize where we are in history and how important it is for us to be about doing the work that we are supposed to be doing, spreading the gospel. Yes, what did you think about what David Dolan and Edmar Marcus said about what's going on in Israel? Well, Jimmy, you look at that situation in Israel and events are rapidly moving. We see Iran's influence in Israel. We see the uh, the world media basically portraying a narrative that is incorrect. And you look at that and one thing we talk about with Dave Dolan all the time is whose God is God. And we see that you could almost see in this world that the people are looking to call it anti-Semitism or whatever you want, but they are trying to defeat the Jewish people. Because if you do defeat the Jewish people, you keep God from completing his plan in this world. 
Rick, I started out the program today to be more specific about war. The future holds at least one more world war as we see Bible prophecy. And I believe really there's going to be two major wars in the future during the tribulation period, Ezekiel 38 and the battle of Armageddon, which will take place. But there's nothing to say that there won't be wars that happen again going up to the tribulation period. So we could see more wars. In fact, when you look through the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 6, all the way through chapter 11, chapter 12, 13, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 19, there are wars all the way up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as we take a look at this, I mean, each one of these could be setting up for that first major war to take place during the tribulation period. Well, they certainly could, Jimmy. And if you look at Revelation 19.11, it says, In righteousness he, talking about Christ, judges and wages war. Revelation 19.19 says, John saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him. Again, talking about Christ who sat upon the horse and against his army. You know, we need to take special notice that it says the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against Christ. This clearly describes a world war. It should be noted that the victor in this war was always going to be Christ. He's going to seize the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and he cast them into the lake of fire. The armies that follow them are destroyed. That's Revelation 19, 20, and 21. So although there will be at least one more world war, there is no doubt of the outcome. Righteousness will prevail as Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, defeats all who oppose him. It's also worth mentioning, Rick, at this time that following the 1,000-year reign of Christ, there will be another uprising which could possibly have the scope of a world war. Satan will be bound for a 1,000 years and then released. And upon his release, he leads a rebellion among the peoples of the earth. Christ quickly puts down this rebellion and permanently judges Satan, casting him into the lake of fire as he did with the beast and the antichrist the false prophet so that's revelation chapter 20 rick really again when we see these things it just helps us to take comfort and that's what i asked dr schmidt how do we take comfort in these words that sometimes spell doom and gloom but as you said the victor is clearly christ and we will be those of us that know him as the bridegroom as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we learn more and more about him every single day, it helps us to realize that we're on the victory side. I remember that used to be an old saying that was on the radio, on the victory side, and that's what we can be. Rick, great program today. Thanks for doing the legwork and doing uh, all the hard work and interviewing our broadcast partners around the world, and I look forward to being with you again next week. It's my pleasure, Jimmy. I look forward to it as well. And folks, as we always say, the best way to not be a part of the future on this earth during the tribulation period is to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and to have the urgency, the immediacy in your mind that all your friends and neighbors and loved ones also need to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. That helps us to keep looking forward until the rapture of the church takes place. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.